How does a scholar bridge across different countries, across different continents, across different fields, across different academic cultures? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Tamara Falikov in this episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcikowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am thrilled to have with us today Tamara Falico. Tamara is professor in the Department of Film and Media Studies and also in the Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies at the University of Kansas, where she's been for over a couple of decades. Um, she got her bachelor's in sociology at the University of California at Berkeley and her PhD in communications at the University of California in San Diego. She is the author of two books. Uh, the first one, The Cinematic Tango, Contemporary Argentine Film, and the most recent one, Latin American Film Industries, that was published by the British Film Institute in London in 2019. She's also written a number of articles in uh, journals and also a number of book chapters and is co-editor of the very uh, well-regarded uh, book series Framing Film Festivals that Palgrave Macmillan publishes. Tamara, welcome to this episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you so much, Pablo, for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. So tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? So Pablo, it's a great question. Um, I don't think about it often. It's been a while since I started my journey, but I think it kind of happened organically. Um, when I was a child, um, I was in high school, my parents really felt that it was important that I see cinema from their country. There was a tour in the late 80s of Argentine cinema uh, in redemocratization. Re that was the name of the tour. And it played at uh, a museum in La Jolla, California, which is near San Diego, where I was in high school. And this was a series of films that was really detailing in very powerful ways what life was like in Argentina uh, during the dictatorship that had only recently collapsed. And I, I will be honest, begrudgingly went with my parents. Uh, I definitely was your stereotypical high school kid who wanted to be with her friends. And I actually really thank my parents for saying that no, I needed to accompany them. I needed to see these films. And when I saw these films, I was absolutely blown away. 
And why was I blown away? Well, for one, I had been an avid film watcher. And so I was always interested in seeing films from different perspectives. I really liked documentary film. I, I had been exposed to different kinds of cinema, but when I saw these films that were spoken in an Argentine accent, you know, a specific Castellano that my parents speak, and when I saw these themes that were, as I said before, quite powerful and uh, were telling stories I hadn't heard before that I knew my friends had never heard before, that's when a little light bulb went out, went up, and I thought, hmm, maybe even though I was born in the US, just maybe I could be a bridge. Maybe I could show these movies to my friends because not only were they stories that were about my identity and about my parents, but they were films that anybody could enjoy. They were powerful stories and they were different kinds of stories than what they were normally seeing on the Hollywood screens. So I think that was kind of the seed that, you know, I didn't necessarily knew, know at that moment, oh, I'm going to be a professor. I mean, I started thinking about being a filmmaker. I studied sociology as an undergrad. And then ultimately I realized, hmm, you know, maybe I can find a hybrid way of working with films, but also having um, an academic track. So it, it, it happened gradually. Um, but this is, I think, the beginning of the story. So very interesting. So you are first generation American. So Correct. I was born yeah. in the US. My parents came over and they, they lived in the US for eight years before I was born. My first language was Spanish. And so certainly I knew when I finally went to grad school, this is what I want to work on. The fact that I have the language, the fact that I have so many friends that don't speak Spanish, or don't know about this culture. I want to work on this. Very interesting. So you went to Berkeley. Uh, got your BA in uh, sociology. How was the process to get into grad school and why UCSD? That's a good question. And I'm going to delve into some personal territory that uh, hopefully won't be too hard for me to talk about. But um, I think it's important people know because we all have personal struggles in our lives. Um, well, so my parents, you know, they... They came over to this country. They were educated. I mean, my father had gone to the Colegio Nacional, which was one of the top public schools, uh, didn't come from a wealthy family, solidly middle class. Um, they're Jewish too, my, both my parents, uh, kind of stereotypical, but truly believed in education. They knew that that was how their kids were gonna thrive in, in this new country. So I always knew that I would go to college and maybe grad school. And um, I'll just tell you a little bit about college first, because you actually asked about grad school, but I think, you know, the personal story does matter. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I was looking at colleges, my father was pretty ill at the time. He um, developed a really rare form of cancer. And it was a really tough period in my life because, and you know, I am going to talk about what it means to be in a Latin American family. I think that some of our listeners may relate to this. Um, they truly did think family was the most important thing. And when I wanted to spend time with my friends and be social, they really would call me back and say, no, we're spending the new year together, multiple generations of people in one room. So when my dad got ill, um, I knew I had to stay close to home. I knew that uh, it wasn't going to be easy for me to travel. My mom was going to be alone raising three kids. So for my first year of college, I actually went to UC San Diego. That's where I grew up, as I mentioned. 
Um, my dad had died a week before the semester started. It was shocking and terrible, although we'd been kind of preparing all this time and I lived at home. Then I, after a year, I, I really had wanted to go to UC Berkeley. Um, I had just heard so many things about the Bay Area. I was really interested in politics, progressive politics. Um, I just had a sense that I needed a, a chance to explore that part of the country, you know, Northern California versus Southern. Um, my, my uncle was a physicist, uh, Leo Falikov, who was a professor there. He really wanted myself and my sisters to come and have lunch with him <laughs> at the faculty club, which I did. Um, and that went okay. Now, why did I choose graduate school and how did I choose graduate school? That was tricky. I, I graduated in sociology and you had asked the question, why did, how did I get into academia? I really didn't know. I, I said I wanted to possibly be a filmmaker. I lived in the Bay Area a year out of grad school. I worked at a community uh, screening space and editing facility called ATA, which still exists in San Francisco, Artist Television Access. So I did curation of uh, film screenings on cultural identity. You know, I'd always really wanted to explore this in different iterations. And I thought maybe I would take my sociology background and make documentary films. But somehow, somewhere, I started thinking about graduate school. And, um, you know, I looked at some communication programs. I wanted a combination of production and studies. That is how I continue to think now, is how can we be hybrid? How do, why do we need to stick to one model? How can we expand our notion of academia? Um, you know, when we, when we worked together on a talk I just gave, there, were, there was a student that said, I wanna do expanded media, internet, film. I love that. We need to think about different ways that we can reach audiences, public facing humanities, public facing arts, right? So two programs that had this hybrid model of graduate uh, scholarship was UC, UC Berk, I'm sorry, UC San Diego, and also um, a program in Madison, Wisconsin. And I looked at both of them, but ultimately the draw of home, going to San Diego and living at home, as many Latin American people do before they settle down, meet their significant other, possibly get married, what have you, that was the model that I adopted. And um, I think it was important to do that. So that is what I did for grad school is go to a school near my family. And how was the graduate school experience for you? San Diego at the time was, uh, had a very, very distinct identity in the field and an incredibly robust faculty. Um, so how was your experience there? It was, it was quite uh, stimulating. It was quite challenging. Um, I knew that when I applied to graduate school, as I said before, I wanted to work in Latin America. So the first thing I would say for people interested in grad school is really look at the faculty. What are the faculty doing? Because really it is about what you can contribute to the department, but also what can they contribute to you? And I was really lucky that we had some faculty at the time like Daniel Hallen, who does work in journalism and comparative media systems, even though he didn't work in film, which I decided I need to continue in this realm. Um, it's, you know, when I go into a movie theater and I watch a film, my jaw will just drop. I get so engrossed in the stories that I just didn't want to give that up. And he was willing to work with me. I also was very lucky to work with Dee Dee Halleck, who um, has retired, and she is 
part of that world that I intersected with with ATA in San Francisco, grassroots media work, um, you know, alternative media systems and communication. She had worked a lot with Latino students. She was very uh, receptive to my work. And what I didn't tell you is that year between graduate school and, and university, when I lived in San Francisco, I traveled to Cuba with a humanitarian aid caravan called Pastors for Peace. We were protesting the US blockade. And I learned a lot about Cuba because when my dad was ill, he tried to find a cure for his cancer by working with scientists there. And I got to travel to Cuba, but only for six hours to deliver his tumor for the scientists to do research. And I was told you can only spend six hours here because the US government won't let you trade with the enemy. And so I was 17 years old. I'm digressing a little bit, but I'll come back to my main point. When I was 17 years old, I met some scientists in Havana and they said, you know, it's so sad that you and your mother are here to help your father who's ill and you can't even see our beautiful beaches. You cannot even understand anything about us. You just have to come in and out. And I thought to myself, wait a minute. I was scared to come to this country because of the Cold War rhetoric. I thought I was going to see people with horns, you know, and Fidel Castro was going to throw me into a jail. Um, but instead, I have these welcoming people who will not only want to help my dad with medical trials, which are free, by the way, but now they're telling me that the U.S. government is not letting me see what they're all about. Um, and so that stuck with me. So the following year after I graduated from college, I went to Cuba with the humanitarian aid caravan. I told the story of how the Cuban doctors were trying to help my father. Obviously, the situation in Cuba is very complex. I'm not necessarily saying it's a utopic land, no. But Didi Halleck, she had done work on Cuban media and cinema and was very open to me looking into possibly writing a dissertation on Cuban cinema because I was very interested in how their films were fomenting social change, trying to look at, for example, machismo and try to change the way in which the Cuban family was structured and using film as a tool. And uh, so I think UC San Diego was a really good fit for me because there were faculty there that were willing to work with me on my interests. And so I would suggest definitely number one, try to figure out what you wanna do, try to find your match in terms of faculty support. Excellent and fascinating story. It's very interesting how sometimes, you know, family life, uh, you know, many times, many years after the fact, right? Reemerges and reappears and continues to shape uh, what we do professionally. So, you are wrapping up your PhD. Um, you are working in film. You are working on a comparative Latin American angle. Did you always, not always, but at that stage, did you sort of have a, an overwhelming focus on a college professor career or did you consider other options? Well, I think what ends up happening is you have these structural ways in which programs are created and you have certain choices you have to make at the end of the day. So while I was at San Diego, I was teaching video production. I still was kind of following that path of possibly wanting to make films. And, you know, I know you've had our colleague Mari Castaneda on your podcast before. She and I actually worked on a documentary around the taco shop poets 
who were these amazing poets that would literally perform poetry in a public space in taco shops around San Diego. So I definitely explored these possibilities. But ultimately, I had to decide that if I wanted to do the PhD, I have to write a dissertation. And so when I had to write a dissertation, I decided I wanted to get to know my family. So going along the lines that you're saying about where the personal becomes political and you know may shape your career path, I decided that since I hadn't spent a whole lot of time as an adult in Buenos Aires, that I was going to apply for a Fulbright. And I was going to see if I could spend a year in Buenos Aires getting to know my family and getting to interview film directors from Argentina and really understand the role of the state in funding film production at the time. And little did I know that when I was able to live there from 1997 to 1998, that this became a watershed year for the Nueva Ola de Cine Argentino. This was a new wave of young directors who had a little bit of money that they got ironically under the Menem administration. So I've, I've kind of pointed that out in some of my work. And it was an incredible time to be down there, to do research, to interview people, to get to know people better, and to further strengthen my idea of being a bridge. And the result of which was my book, The Cinematic Tango. Uh, so I can't really say that academia was something I chose. I think it chose me because I just decided to go along this path, um, which I ultimately think was the right choice because I've been able to, now that I've become a full professor, to really explore, and perhaps academia has become a little more flexible since I started, to explore other forms of um, engagement, uh, critical inquiry that isn't solely peer-reviewed journal articles and the like. Very interesting. Now, a bridge connects two places. Um, did you ever consider you know, settling in Argentina as opposed to visiting Argentina for long or for short? You know, it's a really good question. I did so much enjoy and resonate living there and getting to know not only my family, but I made very strong connections with friends as well. And I wanted to have that. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, my parents came over to the US and then after the crisis of 2001, which Pablo, I'm sure you remember, this was the biggest default in the history of the world. I mean, things went south so fast that my aunt moved to Israel, my cousin moved to Miami. Uh, we had a big exodus of family. And so it wasn't as if it was just my parents that had left and everyone else was there. Um, I felt at home there, I enjoyed it, but I knew that really I had to go back and get to, you know, I still have such a strong relationship with my mother who's still in San Diego and my sisters who are in different parts of the country. Um, but I maintain my, you know, relationships virtually with colleagues there. And, and since then I've expanded my, my realm to now Central America. Um, and part of that is because of the University of Kansas where I landed um, has had an historically very strong relationship with the countries of Costa Rica, Honduras, and Paraguay. And I did not expect to necessarily uh, migrate over to that uh, region, but it has worked out in that way. And it, it's a good fit because we have that history here. Fascinating. So, so I'm going to continue with this metaphor of the bridge. So you've been breaching intellectually um, for over a couple of decades, you have um, 
when you breach, you, you in, in essence translate in part the culture of Latin America to US-based audiences, right? Through your work. Not always, but you know, many times it's mostly in English that you publish. What have you learned about how to translate one world to the other and about the heterogeneity within Latin America? Because Honduras is different from Paraguay, Costa Rica is different from Argentina. And even Honduras and Costa Rica, which are closer geographically, they also have their own differences, right? And so do Paraguay and Argentina. So what are some lessons that you learned about this art of bridging and making something from one place intelligible to the other? You know, Pablo, that is a big um, tenet of my work. I would say it, it, it's apparent in everything that I do, whether it be uh, bridging disciplinary boundaries. Now that I'm an associate dean, I'm really trying to help arts and humanities bridge with the medical sciences, whether it be bridging English and Spanish. Now I'm working on an indigenous trilingual dictionary in MEPA, which is an indigenous language of Mexico, Spanish and English. So I'm really absolutely um, committed to figuring out ways that we can translate and understand one another so that we keep the nuance, we keep the nuance of the conversation and we understand that it's not a one size fits all approach. I think that this concept of Latin America on one level is um, very strategic in terms of say voting, you know, maybe, uh, or in terms of cultural identity, our colonial history, for example, but it's also very reductive. As you were saying, people don't understand in the United States, how different these different countries are, and they just see them as this monolith. And so I'm really committed to trying to figure out ways to parse that out. So one example I can give you is I teach a course called Southern Cone Cinemas. And what's interesting about Southern Cone is it can mean Chile, Argentina, uh, possibly Brazil. Uh, it can also obviously include Uruguay. So there are different ways that you can frame the Southern Cone, but at least you have multiple countries that then you do comparative work around. Um, and that way the students have to really learn the difference between Chile, Uruguay, Argentina, even though they all speak Spanish, it's a different kind of Spanish. You know, that's why I made the point about these Argentine films that I saw as a kid. Um, people have to be a little bit more fluent in their understanding. Um, I'm always interested in people's names and trying to figure out, oh, I think I know that that is a name that's typically found in this country. Um, also being an Argentine Jew, I am not Catholic. You know, we again, assume that everyone is one thing. Well, no, they're evangelical people as well, right? And so it's a matter of getting people in the door in on a topic that is of interest to them. And the good news is film, is a lovely way, it's such a fantastic accessible medium to get someone in the door and say, look, yes, you're gonna have to read subtitles. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to work a little bit and be an active viewer. But once you do that, I believe that you're gonna love my class, not because of me necessarily, but because of the films that I'm gonna show you because those films are gonna blow your mind and how sad is it that you don't get to see them in your movie theater. So when I say I'm a bridge, I'm a bridge to, to connecting and to providing hopefully access to things that are not necessarily so available. So I also think of myself as a producer. I wanna bring people together, maybe from different disciplines and try to create something. And, and how, 
has that experience been as a dean? Because it's very different as a scholar, right? When you are creating through your work than as a dean when you are creating through the institutional configuration, right? So how did that come about being you know, associate dean and what has your experience been in that space? Well, I have to say, you know, if we're talking about life hacks or tips for people interested in possibly going to graduate school, I also feel extremely strongly that BIPOC people, Latin American, Latinx people, women consider leadership positions because the issue that we have here is that we have these stories that are often marginalized perspectives and how on earth are we gonna have opportunities to sit at the table if we don't have access to some decision-making um, opportunities? I mean, I can say power too, let's face it, right? So when I was, uh, when I became tenured, I actually uh, decided I was going to see about becoming chair of my department. And that is a risky move, I'm gonna say. Um, if you're in the academic world, you know that it might be better to wait until you're a full professor, oh. right? You, you write that second book or whatever it takes to, to, to become a senior uh, faculty member before taking on administration. But I felt very strongly that um, in my department, we needed a voice that would be able to bridge uh, different boundaries and disciplines and that I wanted to meet alums in Hollywood and talk to them about getting students if they wanted to move to LA to have those conversations. So it gave me an opportunity to create new initiatives. That's something I feel very strongly about. I think that's why I was able to become a Dean is that people see that I'm very outward facing. I wanna do outreach. I want to engage with the public. I think it's a shame if university scholars are doing work that does not translate out. And so, as I was saying earlier, public facing humanities and arts means things like podcasts, like what you're doing, Pablo. Um, it means documentary films that um, people have access to. It's not always a very jargon filled theoretical work that is important, don't get me wrong, but that may not have the same reach as other forms of research that can have an impact. Um, so if we're talking about Latinx, Latin American studies, um, I felt that in my role as associate dean, we needed to figure out how do we survive? How do we survive in an age of neoliberalism where the market is transcending all the, the logics of, you know, art for art's sake and learning for learning's sake? And in my particular case, I reached out to the KU Medical Center to talk about health disparities and how culture can help humanize the medical field. And I also was well aware that there were huge grants available where there was this section of the grant called Broader Impacts. And that was how the arts and humanities could possibly get a leg up and at the same time being honored and recognized for the work and also be funded. So that's an example of how I was hopefully using my leadership role in a way to have these disciplinary conversations and to build these bridges in that way. Excellent. Then this brings up brings us up to the, the last question of this conversation. Unfortunately, I've been enjoying it very much, but you know, nothing lasts forever. Um, if you had magical powers then and, and could be granted one wish about how you would like the study of media and communications to change, what would you wish for? 
Well, I think that we have to continue breaking down our silos and we have to continue doing the work that your center is doing where we're trying to bring in different voices from different disciplines. I think we tend to be in our groups, which is incredibly valuable. Like I'm part of Society for Cinema and Media Studies. And if it weren't for the Latino caucus, I don't know where I would be today. We need to have strengths within our identity groups, but then we need to break them down and create coalitions and, and, and you know, work in leadership positions to make more visible the work we do. Because I think the work that we do, like the films that we make, need to continually look for broader audiences. And so my wish for communication and media studies in the world of Latinx, Latin American uh, studies is that we have to find out how we can reach a broader audience and, and make people understand that this is important to them too. And it's also the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is finally starting, I would argue, finally starting to take some shape in the wake of you know, Black Lives Matter and, and, and the racial equity and social justice movements that are hitting finally. I mean, they've been here all along, but I think this might be an opportunity to finally be able to not be afraid to just break out and say, look, this matters to everyone. You need to learn this. This is going to help us all. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Very, very important message. Uh, thank you, Tamara. This has been a fabulous conversation. Uh, thank you to our listeners for staying with us through the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you so much, Pablo, for having me. Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcikowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.